You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. So we are in the middle of a sermon series on disruptions. And there have been two news stories that um, have a lot of us been tracking in uh, the past week that have uh, been there for a while. They've really especially surfaced this past week that are about just remarkable disruptions. One of them is the uh, story of the Ebola outbreak in the Western African nations of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And the second is the violent religious extremism of ISIS, the Islamic State, as it's making its way through Iraq, um, has taken control of Christian cities and is embarking in what Chaldean leaders call a Christian genocide um, and other religious minorities are finding their lives threatened and lost. And I have to be honest that in each case, I feel helpless as I read these stories. I don't feel that my prayers are helpless. Uh, Ryan reminded us last week of the call to pray in the midst of disruptions along the way in discipleship. And I believe in that. I absolutely believe that God brings his kingdom to bear on earth through the prayers of God's people. And at the same time, I sit before these stories feeling helpless and wanting to know how do they connect to what we do here? How do, how do we connect what we do here to them? Who connects this? And we find a story in Mark that connects to each of these disruptions. It's a story of adoration disrupting uh, corruption. The center of this passage, as you heard it earlier read in the sandwich stories, uh, is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is the one who we count on to also be at the center of our worship, the center of this interaction we're having right now in a sermon, and it's those listening to a sermon. So let's pray to him. Lord Jesus Christ, we exalt you and we praise you. And we pray that you will be the living word in, in the words I'm speaking, the living word in the way that we receive these words and meditate on them, and that it will all be to your glory as our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story is in Mark 14, chapters 1 through 14. You can see it listed behind me on the screen if you want to look in your, in your Bibles as I go along. But the center of the passage is Jesus. It's Jesus at a meal. It's a dinner scene. He's, imagine all of these men reclining at table, and a woman shows up who has been uninvited. You can tell she's uninvited because the meal is well underway, and she disrupts it. She disrupts it. She disrupts it by bringing in a, a jar that she's clutching. I always imagine a sort of silence as she comes in and begins to do what she's doing because you know that awkward silence when something like this happens. It just shouldn't. Uh, breaks open the jar, and, and, and there's a aroma. The scent of this ointment overpowers the room. It's, it's the smell of nard, and this is a smell you associate with death. I don't know how many of you um, associate the smell of lilies with funerals. Um, but just that very uh, overwhelming smell. This would be even more so. It's used in burials. And this small alabaster jar is worth a year's salary, over a year's salary of the working class. Oil from this jar runs down Jesus' face. Imagine it going down his hair. Imagine it making the clothes that he's wearing dark and splotchy as it soaks in. Uh, she hasn't simply anointed him. She hasn't dabbed it on his forehead. She has drenched him in this oil. And Mark tells us that those who witnessed this spectacle, every last one of them was indignant. Now, this is a fascinating word, 
indignant. This word is used in Mark's storytelling when Jesus is indignant at his disciples who are trying to keep away the women and children that are seeking Jesus' blessing. This story is told when indignant is, is the reaction of the, 12, the 10 disciples when they find out that James and John have been uh, finagling to try to get the seats on the left and the right of Jesus when he comes in his full kingdom. They're indignant. It's, it's a righteous anger. It's an anger that, that is expressed when someone is blocking what should be uh, given or, or, or opened up to another person. A righteous anger at blocking the blessing from these women and children. A righteous anger at, at blocking the opportunity for any of the 12 disciples to ascend to the left or the right hand of Jesus. And in this case, it's a righteous anger that this money has been wasted, that could have been uh, spent on the poor because the gospel message of the kingdom of Jesus is supposed to be good news to the poor. Go back and read. This is what they've been preaching. Good news to the poor is their message. And she just dumped it out. What a presumptuous, incredible waste. And on the surface of things, it seems like grounds for righteous indignation. Until Jesus sends it right back on them in no uncertain terms. You can see it in Mark 14, 6. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has performed a good service for me. I actually think the better translation of this, the King James and others use it, is a beautiful thing for me. She has done a beautiful thing for me, Jesus says. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus takes aim at their umbrage in verse 7. You'll always have the poor with you. You can show kindness to them whenever you wish. You will not always have me. Now, Jesus is quoting from Moses here. In Deuteronomy 15, Moses said, quote, Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. End of verse. So see, giving to the poor is meant to be a daily activity for anyone who follows Jesus. The poor should not have to wait for extravagant acts. Caring for the poor, loving your neighbor, that is a daily calling for Jesus' disciples. The poor you'll always have with you. You won't always have me. Jesus calls everyone in that room back to himself as center, away from these other distractions. It's an exchange, really, that reminds me a little bit of the story of Mary and Martha. Do you remember when Martha got so hacked off because Mary wasn't helping? She was sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha had all the hospitality work to do on her own, and she came and she got angry at Jesus, and Jesus called her back to the essential thing. You can do hospitality day in and day out, Martha, but I'm here. You won't always have me with you. Mary has chosen the essential things, sitting at Jesus' feet as a disciple and learning. This woman has chosen the essential thing, adoration of Jesus, wholehearted in the midst of them. Remember what Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And this woman's heart and treasures are dedicated wholeheartedly to Jesus. This is not a naive, untested adoration that is blind to the realities of hand. This adoration is poured out with eyes wide open to Jesus' death. 
She has done what she could, he said. She's anointed my body beforehand for its burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done is going to be told, remembering her. Go back and look at Mark. Jesus speaks about his death numerous times, at least three, if not more, that are recorded. And each time it is met with resistance, it is met with distress, it is met with misunderstanding. But on this night, reclining at the table, the disciples know the smell of that ointment. That is the smell of death. This all or nothing risk on the part of this woman wakes them up out of their denial in a way that all of the previous words and actions surrounding Jesus have not done. They react by rejecting this woman and her waste. And, and I can't believe that they mean to be mean-spirited. I think they just got scared because nobody wanted to say goodbye to this man. But this unnamed, uninvited woman understands. Do you see this oil on my body? Jesus asks. Smell that perfume? She's prepared me for burial. She got it. She took this crazy, lavish, loving risk, a risk that I doubt she even knew the full significance of because none of them could have actually fully imagined the events of that week. She just knew he spoke about death and crucifixion and it being imminent, and she took action. What the disciples saw as a waste of money, Jesus called a waste of love, and he called it a beautiful thing. So if you want to tell the full story of my gospel, Jesus said, the full story of my good news to the poor, you'll include the story of this woman. You will include the story of a woman who lavishly, even wastefully poured out her love for Jesus Christ. If you're going to preach the gospel to the whole world, you'll have to do this. You will have to remember this waste of love because lose that, lose this adoration and you lose the gospel. Because this incident happened two days before the Passover. And we know that three days later, Jesus Christ would lavishly, some would say wastefully, pour out his love for us. This woman broke it open and poured out priceless ointment. Jesus' body was broken. His priceless blood poured out in history's most scandalous waste of love. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's lavish waste of love on friends and enemies alike, who, alike, those who do not even know why they're doing what they're doing. Proclaim the amazing waste of love in Jesus Christ on the cross because that lavish love has the power to transform unimaginable horror into inconceivable beauty. See, God did not judiciously dabble oil on the world's wounds. He poured out his blood to heal and to redeem, to forgive and to sanctify. And if the world sees it as a waste, so be it. We worship a God who is pleased to waste that kind of love on those in his creation who are dying. We heard it from Ray. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And Jesus commanded his followers to love others this exact same way. No greater love has this than you lay down your life for your friends. And this is the good news. 
that God poured out his love for us in Jesus Christ. But it's not the whole story. Remember this woman. We're also called then to pour out our love for Jesus Christ. And traditionally in the church, the way we've seen this is that we pour out love for Jesus Christ in all of, as, as Mother Teresa talks about it, his, his horrible disguises in the sick and the dying and difficult. Which brings me back to the news of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, particularly since two Americans working for Samaritan's Purse were evacuated to Emory Hospital in uh, Atlanta to recover from the virus. Ken Isaacs, who's the vice president of Samaritan's Purse, and Dr. Frank Glover of SIM, another Christian relief agency, testified before a subcommittee of Congress this past week, urging greater help in stopping the outbreak. These two Christian relief agencies, along with the overwhelmed Ministry of Health in these nations, have been shouldering the burden of response to the outbreak. And as we pray and mobilize to avoid a pandemic, the continuing presence of these two Christian relief agencies, when 95% of doctors from other countries have left Liberia, is entirely in keeping with Christian practice during epidemics. There's a sociologist called Rodney Stark who was here at the UW for 30 years, then he went to the East Coast, which was an unwise move. And he has described the activity of Christians during the two great plagues that hit the Roman Empire. Do you know about this? We need to know about this in our history. In uh, 165 AD, there was a plague that over its 15 years uh, killed between a quarter to a third of the population of the Roman Empire. Uh, in the third century, beginning in 251 to 266, there was the plague of Cyprian. And at its height, up to 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. Uh, two-thirds of Alexandria, Alexandria is in uh, northern Africa, two-thirds of Alexandria's population was killed. Now, Stark is one of several who have described the difference in the pagan and Christian responses to this disease. He argues that we need to look at this epidemic to understand the growth of the church. Because he said people don't convert based on a sociologist's point of view, based on theology. They learn theology after they convert. People convert based on social relationships and look at what happened during these epidemics, he said. What happened was the pagan population, because their worldview, their religious system had no afterlife, had no hope after death, they fled. Uh, people who were sick would literally just be thrown out, bodies would be left on the ground. The Christians, because it had been their day in and day out practice, to, to love those who were sick as if those people were Jesus Christ. The Christians, because they had hope in the afterlife, stayed put. Stark calls this, quote, a prescription for action, close quote. Namely, since God had lavished love on us in Jesus Christ, then we should lavish love on those who are sick. And some would say that the care of those who are facing certain death is a waste of love. But as Christians, our actions tell the gospel truth, that God wasted love on a world already dead in sin. So we will waste some love right back on Jesus in the form of the sick and the dying. Dr. Kent Brantley released a statement this Friday about his care. He talked about, quote, I held the hands of countless individuals as this terrible disease took their lives away from them. I witnessed the horror firsthand, and I can still remember every face and name. And then he goes on to describe his reaction when he found out he was infected. He says, when the result was positive, I remember a deep sense of peace that was beyond all understanding. 
That's that faith view that Stark talks about. God was reminding me of what he taught me years ago, that he will give me everything I need to be faithful to him. End of quote. Charles Moore, in an article written for The Plow entitled Pandemic Love, he wrote this in response to the um, swine flu in 2009, writes that during the plague of Cyprian in Alexandria, when nearly everyone else fled, the early Christians risked their lives for one another by simple deeds, washing the sick, offering food and water, consoling the dying. What ended up happening is you can reduce the death rate from 30% to 10% just with these simple deeds. And many of the Christians who themselves had been nursed to health by their fellow Christians and were now immune were helping the sick. People began, the pagans began to see them as miracle workers. And it began to embody the message that God gives hope beyond disease and death. Like the woman in today's story, they did what they could when they could. It was simple acts. But because the circumstances were extraordinary, they became lavish acts of love. People who had been in the habit of doing what they could when they could, for their brothers, their sisters, their neighbors, retained that habit in extraordinary circumstances, and they became lavish acts of love. Moore concludes his article on the plague in the early church with the comment that, quote, their faith led to a pandemic, pan meaning all, demos meaning people, a pandemic of love, close quote. Want to know what to do with our anxieties about epidemics in the news? Waste some love. Waste some love, people. Love of neighbor does not begin in crisis. It's too late to start at that. It begins in the day-to-day, and it continues in crisis. And here's the truth. The people you interact with day by day are facing death in one way or another. Immediate virus or slow decay of life in a sinful world. So live in a way that can only be explained by the fact that God and Jesus Christ has lavishly wasted love on you. Do what you can, when you can, to love in Jesus' name. This woman is our example. Now this story is not only relevant to the Ebola outbreak that's been in the news, it also relates to the religious extremism in Iraq. This is where Mark's sandwich format of the story is so incredibly powerful. Because what is on either side of this woman's lavish, wholehearted, everything on the line adoration for Jesus Christ is just corruption, I would say, religious extremism in the religious leaders, the temple leaders, and then colluding with them, Judas, at the end. This woman, the story, the devotion of this woman is encased in the treachery and betrayal of the leaders in Judas. See, in Judas and the temple elite, we witness a religious fundamentalism that has crossed over into extremism. And I'm using those terms very technically and carefully, so stay with me. Now, fundamentalism was certainly at play in the resistance to Jesus. For example, do you remember how Jesus frequently broke the laws, of broke the written word, the written Sabbath laws, to heal on the Sabbath, and it's what made people angry at him. Fundamentalism was very likely in play with the indignation at this woman when she anointed Jesus, because it says right there in Deuteronomy that we are meant to care for the poor. However, this story has crossed over fully into the camp of religious extremism that will resort to killing and violence 
to stop the other. Jesus has openly challenged the temple establishment when he cleared the court of the Gentiles on his entry into the temple, as Ryan preached to us last week. He challenged their authority day after day in teaching on the temple steps. And now one of Jesus' inner circle of 12 will move from indignant scolding to open treachery, handing Jesus over to his death. And I want to know, how does that happen? How how does a a fundamentalism that may be misplaced but is correctable become an extremism that goes into the arena of death and violence? Mark's storytelling gives a simple answer by rejecting adoration. And not just any adoration, the adoration of the crucified Christ, the adoration of the God who's fully revealed in the crucified Messiah. See, surrounded on both sides by extremists, I want you to pay close attention to a key characteristic of the adoration this woman offers. This woman in today's story did not anoint Jesus for his coronation. This woman in today's story did not anoint Jesus as ruler or king or military victor. This woman in today's story did not anoint Jesus as a triumphant Messiah. The woman in today's story, you heard Jesus' words, anointed Jesus for his death and his burial. And Jesus has been direct throughout his ministry that that death would be death by crucifixion. And now he is accepting an act of open adoration, of worship even, of himself as a crucified Messiah, a crucified Christ. And according to Mark's storytelling, this extravagant act of love and adoration was poured out on a Messiah who intends to die. Let me say that again. This is an extravagant act of adoration poured out on a Messiah a Christ who's repeatedly told his followers he will be crucified. And according to Mark's storytelling, that adoration of a crucified Christ is a waste that Judas can no longer abide. Truth or goodness without adoration of a crucified Christ quickly becomes a fundamentalism that moves into extremism and violence. There is nothing more dangerous to religious extremism than the worship of a crucified Savior. And this is the good news, the way that Mark tells it. That the disruption of the worship of the crucified God can disrupt the corruption of religious extremists. I'm not talking about the adoration and the worship of a triumphalistic God. This is a story about the worship of a God revealed in Jesus Christ who went to his death in a radical waste of love for friend and enemy alike. And you and I gather in worship here today, this is the God whom we worship. The open adoration of this crucified Lord puts us in direct solidarity with and in courage of those brothers and sisters persecuted by religious extremists in other parts of the world. And we too easily forget this mystic communion we too easily forget that there is a genuine spiritual connection between our worship and adoration in this place, the worship and adoration in the throne room of God in the heavens, and the worship and adoration that is being undertaken by brothers and sisters throughout the world. See, wasting love on others, that seems practical, functional. Sure, it's poetic in a sermon to call it a waste of love, Lori, but when is love really a waste? Well, I would suggest, how about when we're wasting time in adoration and praise? 
Our heads wouldn't say that we think that's a waste, but this was convicting to me this week. Think about your prayers this last week. How much time did you spend just drenching God in adoration and praise before you got down to the real business of what you had to get done in those prayers? How much time have we spent just wasting time praising God, doing nothing else but focusing our attention on the God revealed in this crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, and praising God? This beautiful thing. Because consider our worship here. Other parts of worship feel very functional. They can be very functional. Prayer uh, makes great sense. We pray and something gets done. It takes faith, but still it's a transaction we understand. This moment of the sermon can, can be very transactional. This is a transaction we get. Sometimes it's a good sermon. Sometimes it's a bad sermon, but somebody up here gives it to you and you take it or reject it. It's a transaction. Uh, announcements can be a transaction, sometimes a tedious transaction. But we get how that works. Storytelling, we get how, see how quickly every part of worship can become transactional. That's what happens when adoration is removed. And a highly transactional worship easily becomes, well, a highly transactional religion. Transactional worship participates in a transactional religion. And I cannot believe that a transactional religion will have any resilience in the face of religious extremism. Adoration disrupts extremism. Adoration disrupts corruption. So how do we respond as individuals and as a church to the threat of religious extremism? We worship. We worship in a way that lavishes love on Jesus Christ. We worship with pure adoration. We lose that adoration and we are lost. Now, as many of you know, I will be, um, I'll be stepping away actually from this role that I've had as worship team lead at the end of this month for a year to work on my thesis for my uh, dissertation, to complete it, I should say. Lord willing. And, um, uh, and, and Daryl Waddell and, and, and Dave Gardner will be the co-directors of the worship team, and we've got a great worship team, and this isn't why I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing this up because I'm, I'm going to take just a moment to give us a charge. I'll still be here, still be worshiping together. But particularly based on this story, there's a charge I want to leave with us as a worshiping congregation. And it's this. George has given us a very clear vision of this waste of love in our neighborhoods. He's talked to us about how gathering here in worship, we gather here to adore and to glorify Jesus Christ, to, to give love to Jesus and receive Jesus' love so that we can go out in our neighborhoods and, and, and lavish love on our neighbors. It's an important vision. It's an important vision for the growth of the church. It's an important vision for the sharing of the gospel, for the living out and the preaching of this good news. Because right now we have unrecognized brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, in Guinea, who are wasting some love on their sick neighbors right now at the risk to their own health. The least we can do is join them in lavishing love on our neighbors here as God has lavished his love on us. And central to this vision, essential to this vision, the essential anchor is worship. We, we don't gather in this space simply to follow this order of worship and say our words and enjoy some music and hear some announcements and hopefully feel a little better at the end. Adoration of the crucified Christ is the primary purpose of this gathering. 
and this space, and it must remain the center and the purpose of this worship, or we abandon ourselves and our world to lesser gods. Because what happens here matters greatly to the horror of what is happening in Iraq, in Cameroon, and other places of religious extremism. The adoration that we offer here disrupts the powers at play in those places. So we are here to lavish love on the God who has lavished love on us. We are here to exalt the name of Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead, as Lord of all nations and of all systems, the one whom one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.